Ladies and gentlemen, while panel one highlighted the perspectives from three piece and academia on how to foster digital inclusion, this next panel will deep dive into how different organizations promote e-readiness among their communities. Each speaker will have seven minutes to present. Our first speaker is Mr. Andrew Bray, Vice President for Singtel Group's Corporate Sustainability. He is also talent coach at Singtel's Australian subsidiary, Optus Future and Emerging Leaders Program. Thank you. Good afternoon. Don't start the bell yet. <laughs> uh, I thought uh, today what I will do is, because there's a lot of discussion around digital inclusion, bridging the digital divide, I thought I will talk about uh, the other side. Once you've crossed the divide, we are sometimes faced with this thing called the digital chasm. I call it the digital chasm. And enjoy the photos. There's nothing worse than hiking over the the top of the peak, thinking you're into the meadows, only to see it's a steep cliff and a drop after that that you've got to cross. So I use this diagram just to provide a simple framework for framing what I'll talk about. You know, um, when you think about the aspect of the digital inclusion, uh, it's about how do we get the peripheries, the edges, in a sense, access to quite a lot of other things we take for granted, whether it's the internet, computer, technology, knowledge, information, and skills. And as I mentioned, I'll focus on that middle part, uh, falling off the cliff that is starting to happen in many different dimensions. But I also talk about how with digital, is actually creating the bridge uh, in a very different and innovative way that brings things like healthcare and education and a lot of other things that otherwise you can't bring out to some of what I'll call some of these marginalized communities. So this is a piece of uh, global research that was done by one of our partners, DQ Institute, in 2018, that was assessing the, what we call the cyber risks of kids in the eight to 12 years old uh, bracket. And uh, you know, what this data showed is globally, as was shared earlier, it's actually a global problem, especially with our youth and our kids, while we're giving them earlier and earlier access to digital devices and access to the internet and to social media, many are facing cyber risks. Whether the cyber risk is issues of cyber bullying, mental health issues, identity issues, etc. And actually Singapore is just slightly better than the global average. And I use this word average now very cautiously after Prof. Uta's uh, presentation earlier. But you know, uh, Singapore is no exception. And then you have places like Philippines, you get extremities, it's really relating to child pornography and child trafficking and sex trafficking and all that, various different exposures. And if you look at Singapore, uh, from the research at least in 2018, it's about 45,000 samples, uh, 40 schools and organizations, uh, things like cyberbullying, tacit, tacit type of bullying, and even cyberbullying is a broad spectrum of different dimensions. Uh, the research also showed that if you correlate some of these cyber risks, there's a correlation between kids who have not only just mobile access, but those who have mobile access and very high social media uh, hours spent. And, you know, on the far right, you are looking at the average screen time. I keep now thinking every time I use the word average, uh, I'm going to get a question from Professor Yuta. But, you know, it's not necessarily the length of time but it was, as was commented earlier, it's the, 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 the time that's spent in productive versus unproductive type usage. So clearly a global issue. And it's based on a lot of the data and the research and even our engagement with parents, with teachers, you know, as part of our stakeholder engagement, that we identified one of the key focus. We are in the digital 
the telecoms, the ICT business. And yes, while we want to make profits, how do we make profits responsibly? So that even as we want more people to be using phones and internet, how do they use it safe and responsibly? So digital citizenship and online safety has been a key part of our sustainability community impact program. It's about how do you create that inclusion while ensuring uh, the well-being. And what we have tried to do since 2013 uh, with different measures of success and even failures is to try and take a bit of a holistic approach. You know, when we look at the problems, you can't average what the issue is. We try and look at the unique problems and some issues need to be tackled through education, building awareness. So we have programs in schools, uh, you know, with uh, DQ Every Child that uh, enables kids to learn through gamified learning, but at the same time, the ability to learn skills in a fun way, but the ability to assess whether they've got any exposures. We've even, a couple of years ago, gone to special needs schools and identified that teachers were bootstrapping information to try and teach kids uh, with cognitive uh, uh, diversity and which they have even greater exposure. And we created uh, a cyber wellness toolkit for these teachers. We launched and just relaunched an updated Not a Newbie, which is a parent-based resource because one of the big challenges we saw is parents are, can be part of the equation of both the problem or the solution. We've also looked at products and services from the retail all the way up to the enterprise. And actually, three years ago, working with NCSS, we identified that a lot are already falling off the cliff. How do we support them even with cyber well-being counselling, and we co-funded a million dollars each with the government to run what is help one, two, three, a national helpline uh, for counselling the more ex extreme cases. But actually, a lot of parents are, are calling in and teachers, not just the youth. Uh, we try and measure the effectiveness of the improvements of uh, kids as they go through some of the programmes. And one of the things we are working uh, with DQ Institute is to try and establish a, a, a global framework that can provide some uh, uh, comprehensive lens to the different technic technical and cognitive and even meta-cognitive, I don't even understand what that means, uh, and social uh, emotional type competencies, because what we're seeing is there are a lot of programs globally that can be tapped, many focus in a particular area, there are some gaps, and actually we're part of a global task force, even together with um, the Skills Future Singapore, because IEEE, OECD, and uh, World Economic Forum has identified as this opportunity to try and create a bit more of a framework that can identify what represents the kind of digital skills and digital acumen. Um, then, very quickly, we do run a program for the last four years recognizing the role of technology in social impact. So we've been working with tech startups developing digital capabilities that can bring healthcare to remote parts of the Philippines or education in a gamified way to the low-income kids that have dropped out of schools or psychological uh, counseling for remote farmers who are suffering from depression. So again, when we think of this digital inclusion, that's how you bring the marginalized access to information and tech. How do you make sure you avoid the risks? But now with technology, you can actually bring a lot of what core basic services that otherwise were constrained by physical presence and physical delivery to a lot more uh, peripheries of society, whether it's geographical or otherwise. And I'll then elaborate on some of the insights and perspectives at the panel later. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Bui. We now have Ms. Carrie Tan, who is the founding executive director of Daughters of Tomorrow. 
The organization enables livelihoods and financial independence for underprivileged women in Singapore. Since 2012, DOT has impacted more than 800 women through community mobilization to provide them with skills and access to job opportunities. Let's welcome Ms. Tan. Hello, good afternoon. Um, I'm a bit nervous here because this tech is really not my expert area. Um, but I think uh, Andrew said a very good stage for me to explain a bit of context of why I'm here. Even our intern, when she was sitting there, she's like, what has this got to do with our work? Um, and I think precisely because people see or don't see the link that is important that we share our perspective. Um, and I think before I go into my slides, I want to um, kind of borrow Andrew's image of the two hills, the chasm. And I think we kind of right now are standing on one side, on one peak. And then we look over there, it's like, oh, all those people who are not digitally ready and we need to get them digitally ready, all of them are seniors, right? Um, I hope that today's presentation in a short seven minutes, I can give you a glimpse into another very important and overlooked community that is standing at the other side and we don't know who they are, or a lot of us don't know who they are. And it could uh, provide some understanding as to why, despite the a lot of resources and programs and schemes that has been provided for digital readiness, it seems not yet to have reached this particular community. So Daughters of Tomorrow is a registered IPC charity, and we work with low-income women in Singapore. Um, some basic um, traits about these women, um, their age is from 20s to 60s, 80% um, of them are from ethnic minority groups in Singapore, and 20% of them are migrant women. Um, one important um, piece of information that I didn't include in this slide is that 80% of these women have secondary school or lower educational qualifications. And you can imagine in a society and economy like Singapore, um, how difficult it is for them to access jobs. So our organization basically focuses on helping to prepare them for job readiness. We have many different programs that builds their confidence, um, soft skills, etc., uh, and we bridge them to employers. Uh, amongst the varied programs that we have is an IT literacy program. And later on, I'll share um, some of the very important insights that we learned ourselves trying to roll out this program to them. So um, just in 2018, last year, we had between 400 to 500 women actively access our programs. And the success rate is about 30%, right? We managed to put 140 of them into successful employment. Um, and interestingly, in the beginning of journey, when we surveyed the 1,000 plus women in our database and asked them, um, what job would you like? You know, they all say, I want admin job. Then we asked them, do you know how to use computer? Don't know. Oh, okay, so that's going to be a problem. So um, we realized that in order to help these women access the jobs that they wanted, uh, which was admin jobs, there's a whole different story about that. They didn't really want admin jobs. They basically wanted jobs that gave them office hours so that they could juggle their childcare needs. But that's a different aspect of an and barrier that we encounter. But I'll delve deeper into this IT literacy and this desire uh, to enter very basic admin jobs, right? So we went into um, designing an IT program in August 2016, that's like run zero, our first pilot. And we took a year, almost a year, to, to refine it three times, right? Um, I think we had pretty good success because between 
the first time we piloted in 2016 to now, class enrollment started off at a very dismal five to seven women. And then now, every time we run it, we have more than 20 uh, women wanting to be there. So we learned a lot. Um, I personally learned a lot. And there were some very, very key misconceptions we had about uh, digital savviness and IT literacy. Number one, young people all know how to use IT. It's a very common refrain, right? Number two, digital access is about having devices and Wi-Fi. That's true, but not the entire truth, right? And IT classes can help people to learn to use IT. Again, it's one of those statements that you can't say that is wrong. Okay, the interesting insights that we got from this, from our experience, is that digital savviness is not related to age, but social connectedness. And how do we know this? I remember the first time in 2016 we ran our IT program at uh, Rockwell Automation's office, and uh, we had seven women come in, and they all looked pretty young. In fact, I spoke to one of them, and I said, how old are you? And let's call her Siti. She said, oh, I'm 25. I'm like, oh, okay. Are you excited to be coming to class? And she said, yes. Like, I haven't touched her laptop in years. And I wanted to ask her what her story is, right? And I found out, to my horror, that this 25-year-old woman, whom we would assume would be very savvy digitally, did not have access to a laptop since she left school or dropped out of school 10 years ago when she was 15. And another woman, very close to her age, came and she was again all excited, um, very shy, so I tried to break the ice and talk to her. And she said, you know, this is the first time in seven years that I've stepped out of my house and gone anywhere without my husband or my children. And those are typical profiles of the women who come into our programs. The other thing that we realized is because in order to run an IT program, we needed to have laptops, which we sourced from our corporate partners to give us secondhand laptops. Um, and then we, you know, cool down with Wi-Fi. And we realized that um, the other thing that stop them from actually using the devices. Oh, I, don't, I think this is a very common thing, right? Whenever we, for those of us who are not so savvy, um, open a computer, something happens, there's a software update, we don't understand the message, and something doesn't move, or you click so many things it doesn't move, you just shut it down. Or you try to call someone for help, right? And the thing is, in this community of low-income um, families, they have no one to call for help. So even if you gave them a device that's running, the moment they encounter some technical difficulties, there's no IT support, right? So then, you know, the beginning of that journey just comes to an abrupt end. And what we realized also that um, getting the women to learn to use IT is really about practice, applicability, and habituation. Um, and I discovered this when I spoke to my mom. I said, mom, you're an accountant. How did you learn to use the computer? And she said, I only know how to use the accounting software. Everything else, I'm not sure. And I said, did you ever go for class? And she said, I did. But then after that, I went home, and in two weeks, I forgot everything. And that was an inspiration for me to start to look into designing our programs in a way that created continued usage. I'm going to ask for a bit more time. So what we do is we partnered with our corporate partners and community partners, and we designed our program to basically um, contain both on-site learning and a component 
after they finished the on-site classes where we actually loaned them the second-hand laptop so that they could bring it home and we attached virtual mentors to these women who would give them homework. In the first iteration and the second one, we realized that nobody did their homework. And it was very demoralizing for our corporate volunteers who took pains to design the homework. And then we realized that the women were not doing homework because they didn't see the point in doing homework that was not related to their everyday lives. So we decided to customize our program and said, okay, these volunteers, you want to do skill-based volunteering, how about we create customized homework based on the goals and aspirations of this woman? So some of them wanted to you know, work as a secretary in a multinational. They would give them secretarial kind of homework to do. Some of them wanted to start their own home business. Um, so the volunteers would give them homework that helped them with creating invoices um, with software, etc. So that improved the homework rate, uh, homework doing rate quite a bit um, when we had uh, customized programs. So as you can see, based on our learnings, um, we then improved on our program design. And one very critical thing that was really about access, which is not in terms of your Wi-Fi or broadband or whether you had gadgets, was whether the women were able to come to class. And we made sure that every single class at Daughters of Tomorrow, we provide childminding services um, where volunteers come so that the women can actually attend. So I think what is unknown or little known in our community is there are a group of, a segment of population who find it difficult to afford even bus fare to get to a class. Um, and they don't have helpers to look after their kids. So really the accessibility here we're talking about is really about the social connections um, and the practical resources that they have to help them get to a point or get to a place where they can learn. So um, that's the end of the presentation. I'm happy to answer some questions if you have any during the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Ms. Tan. Our next speaker is Mr. Sunny Chan. Mr. Chan sits on the board of directors of RSVP Singapore, where he is also a volunteer. He is presently chairman of the Cyber Guide Program and Volunteer Learning Centre. Mr. Chan, please. Thank you, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, for Carrie, I realize you said nobody to call. Call us. We'll get your computer up and running. There's no charges. Right? That is at RSVP. Well, today what I'm going to cover is about RSVP and uh, programs that we have developed in, uh, in conjunction with IMDA to uh, carry out the digital inclusion and digital literacy uh, under the digital community. And also we work with Apple on all the uh, uh, lifestyle type of products, which is of uh, book authoring, you know, iMusic, iArts, or, or the iMovie, iPhotos, and so forth, which we uh, 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 will show you later on and some of the challenges that we encounter. Go to the next slide. Okay, what, what is RSVP? RSVP is an organization uh, for senior volunteers. We provide a platform where senior volunteers uh, can actually add values uh, to the society by uh, doing programs such as befriending, 
which is one of the programs that we train our people on the soft sciences of befriending. And in actual fact, the Kutequat Hospital took it up with their nurses all trained on befriending. And they found at the end of the result, they did an empirical study. And they found that after they discharged 100 patients with this program, 70 of them didn't come back. Only 30 of them came back. So you can imagine the magnifying gain you know, from the hospital standpoint. I still remember those days when I have to bring my mother to be admitted in the A&E. You can never find a ward bed. You, know, you probably have to wait two, three days before you can find. Uh, and they're building bigger and bigger hospitals. So such kind of programs can be used by all the hospitals in Singapore and therefore will provide even more spaces for people. And besides that, there are many other programs that uh, RSVP has that will actually engage uh, senior to pick up the kind of programs that they can uh, participate in and which also in their field of interest. What are the programs that I would like to focus on uh, uh, cyber guide training? Uh, earlier, we talked about uh, seniors. We have actually young seniors which are very IT savvy. Doesn't mean all seniors are not. All right? The young seniors are those that are 40 years and 45 around there. And, and they retired early or they, they get out of job early and they can be very productive in, in that area. You can see that over the years that, that we, we, we have carried out training, we have actually at least covered more than 50,000 of seniors. Each year we train at least two to 3,000 seniors on all the digital products. Uh, and we actually work that digital uh, training uh, packages with uh, IMDA so that it becomes like a community where Instead of random, you know, uh, blindfolding, throwing your dart, and hopefully you hit a bull, uh, bullseye, you know, we actually went in to target the types of programs that are essential uh, for people who actually don't even have education and they speak dialects. So try to train someone in dialects. I think uh, you can find that it's a real challenge because. Uh, they, they don't speak one kind of dialects. They have Chinese dialects, you have Malays, you have Indians, and so forth. So in a multiracial society like ours, uh, dialects becomes a real challenge. But we have a group of trainers that are specifically trained that they can interpret it to their own dialects and communicate it and connect with these people. For instance, uh, recently we just ran another program. We ran many programs with C3A at the SAC course, uh, Senior Activity Centers. But recently we ran a tremendous program with NEA. They just won very focused training on people who actually needs to have, have a, know how to use email because they receive your email that the salary has been deposited they say, where. And they have to learn about iBanking, e-payment, very simply simply communicated to them and using their cell phone. You don't need a computer because not everybody has a computer, but a smartphone they have. So as you could see, these are the programs earlier that I mentioned, the two sets of programs that we actually put together. 
like for Windows types of program, we actually have people you know uh, that 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 can uh, uh, do those program that they selected are appropriately for them. Instead of just just kind of a shower them with all the programs that you have, and actually at the end of it, they, they forgot what, what they have learned. So on focus program where they can get, get what they call de, de, deliverables, at the end of the day, what, what do they get out of it? They can use them. So what they learn, they can apply. So you can see out here, and uh, I will probably take the question and answer later on. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chan. Finally, please join me in welcoming Mr. Ko Kong Ming. He has close to 30 years of experience in the IT industry. He is currently the General Manager and Managing Director for HP Inc., Southeast Asia and Korea. He also sits on the IT Advisory Council for the Singapore Chinese Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, if you guys don't mind, I'm going to use this microphone and sort of stand closer to you. Um, it's been a long time since I've been in a lecture theatre like this, you know, 30 years ago. I'm already a senior. Uh, young senior, okay. I'm not sure that sounds right, but okay. Um, you guys must be wondering why uh, it's a guy like me uh, from the corporate world standing here in front of you. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've been inspired by all the speakers also uh, addressing the needs of seniors, of underserved communities, as particularly women in Singapore. I'd just like to share with you uh, HP's perspective and hopefully we can get some uh, conversation going as well as a dialogue about how we can do this uh, better. But first, a little bit of what HP is about. Right? Um, we have right now about a history of 80 years. Uh, we started way back when one of the original founders of Silicon Valley but the HP that I'm from, which is HP Inc., um, basically we sell laptops as well as printers. Uh, and right now we're also moving uh, into the future of uh, Industry 4.0 or smart manufacturing with our 3D printing technology. So all this means that um, as a tech company, as a tech company in, based in Silicon Valley, but also in the, all the communities around the world. We take digital inclusion very seriously. In fact, we take all sorts of inclusion, uh, including diversity, very seriously within the company. And that's part of our DNA uh, and part of our culture. Okay. Um, quickly, for those of you who don't really know what HP is, uh, Fortune 500 company, about $60 billion of revenue, uh, we operate in 170 countries. In Singapore, we have a pretty large site. In fact, it's one of the largest sites in Asia Pacific. We've been here since the 70s. So very long uh, and deep history in Singapore. We've got about 4,000 employees. And in fact, many of them are very engaged uh, in the communities that we are working and living in as a result. Before we go into the more uh, uh, specific 
uh, topic of digital inclusion. I think it's uh, useful to inform uh, us of where uh, the broader uh, global direction is. And we've sort of identified four mega trends, if you will. And these are trends which are impacting communities, impacting the planet, uh, individuals all around the world. Um, rapid urbanization, for example, and that is going to be a key uh, pressure point. As more people move towards cities, how do you uh, plan for that? How do you improve your services? How do you plan for the fact that some cities are growing at rates of 10% a year in terms of population? Cities like Jakarta, Manila, which is just our very close neighbours, right? They are bursting at the seams in terms of what the infrastructure today can provide. Changing demographics, and we are feeling that impact particularly strongly in Singapore. Right? We, we, we just became the country with the world's uh, uh, longest life expectancy. And half, more than half the population is actually now above 40. So I'm happy I'm in the majority now. Uh, the, um, what kind of services do we provide in health uh, is especially important. How do we make sure that all our seniors have access to digital services, have access to all the things that's required uh, to be able to survive, actually, to survive in today's very digital world. Right? My parents are in their 70s, close to 80s, and I gave them a couple of phones probably about maybe five years ago. At first, they don't know what to, to use it for. Now they're on WhatsApp, at least they know what's happening within the family. They are in our chat groups. Right? But it, it is a challenge that we all have to face up to. Um, Hyper-globalization. That means that we think we are uh, very digitally enabled in Singapore. Well, okay. We think we are very digitally enabled in Singapore. Uh, but the truth is, so are many of our even uh, neighbours. Okay. Uh, the, 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 the city with the largest number of Twitter and most active Twitter users is Jakarta. Okay, they used to be the city with the largest number of Facebook users, but not anymore. Uh, and innovation. So, how does HP view uh, digital inclusion? It's how can we serve these three areas or focus areas well, uh, from a planet, people, as well as community point of view. Across three spectrum, how do we give better access? How do we improve literacy? How do we improve participation? And the last point is where I think uh, key strength of HP is, because it's part of our DNA. We have many groups within HP that reach out to communities. Uh, in fact, today, in this building downstairs, we have about 35 employees from uh, HP volunteering to teach seniors how to use uh, technology, particularly smartphones. We've got several other uh, programs around the region as well as around uh, Singapore to be able to do that. What we believe is that for these programs to succeed and for HP 
to make an impact, uh, it has to be long-term and it has to be sustainable. It's not just a one-off-the-block and we don't do it just for the sake of having good uh, or positive PR. We do it for two reasons. One, we, we believe that we need to contribute to the communities that we are in. And secondly, we also feel that uh, we need to give our employees more than one reason to come to work every day, right? Apart from just receiving a paycheck, they need to feel that it's part of something bigger. So if I have uh, time, I'd like to just end on this note. Thank you, Mr. Ko. May I now welcome back Dr. Soon as chairperson, along with our panelists, Mr. Bui, Ms. Tan, Mr. Chan, Mr. Anderson, and Mr. Ko for the Q&A session. I'm, I'm online. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, welcome back. Um, thank you, um, all the panelists, for um, you know, speaking in rising to the challenge and speaking in such a concise fashion about the work that you have done. Um, we have some questions coming in, but just a very quick one from me. I mean, most of you talk about the work that you do with various communities, uh, and in HP's case as well as Singtel's case, the work that you do with communities around the world. So if we look at all the research and all the work that's been done and published on digital inclusion and helping um, different vulnerable segments of the population connect to the online world and to use technology effectively, we come across a whole spectrum of impediments. Um, if I were to ask each of you, you know, very quickly to kind of zoom in on and identify one key impediment you think is the most dominant um, and comes across from the work that you've done with various communities. Uh, perhaps you can start with uh, Bryn. Thank you, yeah. I was hoping you weren't going to start with me, but that's all right. I'll, uh, <laughs> um, so a biased answer, of course, um, related to what I do. Um, and I think that it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's really, uh, someone talked about mindset earlier on, um, and I think the best way to, to describe this is to talk about my own attitude towards my own disability, which for the majority of, of my, well, 
for the majority of my adult life, was, was really based in shame. Um, you know, which is bizarre, you know. So, but, so the, I had to go through this education in order to, to overcome just barriers with myself, you know. And, um, and I think that if, you, if I look beyond myself, I, I don't have... That shame doesn't purely come from me. That comes from... A lot of that shame is, is, is based on society's feedback um, that I've had growing up. So, so I think that a, an understanding of the consequences of not including people and the shame or the psychological um, sort of impact that that has on these on these marginalised groups, um, I suppose it, for me is the is the number one barrier that creates a kind of us and them. So breaking that down, um, the us and them barrier and the shame that comes with it, I think. Um, I think my experience working in the region, and I can only speak for the majority, well, uh, outside of Singapore, the majority of Southeast Asia, uh, it is the access to education. Uh, that's very key. Most governments in the region, are, you know, they have, uh, all have digital literacy programs, and they're really ramping up in terms of uh, educating their school children today on um, IT. Unfortunately, you know, uh, reality is n n programs like that cannot reach everywhere. We've been in involved in rollouts of uh, 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 IT in schools uh, for the longest time. And even today, there are some schools where, forget about PCs or notebooks, they don't even have access to electricity or clean running water. So how can you talk about having uh, IT inclusion when such basics are not in place? So there are certain things which are needed as part of the infrastructure to be able to get there. And I'm very happy to say at least, right, uh, in the last five to 10 years, uh, the economies around the region are growing very fast and they can afford now to invest a lot more in education. Maybe for me, I speak from the experience of operating in Singapore. Um, and I mean, we're a very small country, we're highly developed, so we don't really have the usual impediments like infrastructure or that kind of physical access. Um, I think related to Brin's point about shame is um, the fact that when we're working with underserved communities, I think the key impediment is really um, social isolation. And that isolation stems a lot from shame um, and because of this social isolation due to various kinds of stigma or simply the fact that financial scarcity prevents people from participating socially, um, there is a lack of social connection. And I think this is something that is, is kind of counterintuitive because when we think about um, digital literacy, we think about connectedness, about how technology helps people to connect. But for these communities, before we even get to the access of, of that digital access, it's the lack of connection that kind of creates a barrier. So we have all the gadgets, we have the infrastructure, but why is it not getting to these communities? It's because we don't understand as a society the people 
whose lives are very different from ours um, because their lives have been, for many, for many years, very isolated. So the impediment is really um, the lack of human understanding of who really our target audience is. Yeah. Well, what are my impediments? I think I try to recall back and actually it's mainly people, programs and organization. Uh, people, in the sense, is that uh, we need to look at because the organization itself are working with volunteers. And volunteers are not paid. They just get reimbursed just for the transportation and maybe a bottle of drinks, something like that. So how to keep them motivated with passion that you can sustain a strategy, uh, a training roadmap for them to continue. So in actual fact, that troubles me a lot. And that's why we today, we actually implement with Apple computers training people in Windows because we can do it on the dual boot environment. Either you put up Windows, you train people on Windows, and you put up uh, OS, and then you train people on Apple products and so forth. Because this way, we try to optimize. At the same time, we introduce new type of training, which in the past, most of them are actual Windows, except for Apple is iOS using the iPad. Uh, but today, there are iPhones. I think they can be a little bit more economically you know, viable. I think there will be more people using it. But that's only one part of, of, of the equation. Uh, the other part is programs and strategy. Uh, the programs are integrated in the strategy of our roadmap so that for those IT savvy, they can actually do coding all the way to e-commerce e site development as well as apps development. And in that, in that area, at least we know we're going to keep them very occupied for this group of savvy people. Right. Then for those who are not IT savvy, then we become selective on the type of training for them. Instead of bombarding them with just a charade of all the training programs, and they, you know, some of them are so enthusiastic, they, will, they attend the program sometimes three or five times. And we ask them why you attend the program so many times, they say, I forget. All right? That means after you come out, you forget. You go back to the classroom again, you know, in that sense. So these are things, the massive demands, as you could see in one of the slides, 900,000 people are going to be coming out. What are we going to do? So we have a strategy that we, we, we are going to work closely with IMDA, is that how do we do cascading training? That's one way is that we will train the trainer. So they will use their trainer because with our people, we only have about 100 trainers can never train, you need 30 years, you know, to, uh, to, to train all of them. There's no way, you know, by that time, you know. So we're talking about just, the, um, yeah. the trainers, right? Having yeah. to increase, say, the number of uh, volunteers you have to help yes, you do your right. work. That's right, that's right. So that's a real challenge. Thank you. Andrew? Thank you. Uh, I think two impediments, but opportunities. One is what I spoke about, you know, we. I've worked across the region in places like Philippines. I think we have largely solved uh, access for mobile and internet to the bottom of the pyramid. But like I mentioned, now with that access, it has all the benefits, 
but there are also a lot of unintended consequences and it's really about addressing that because it's about preserving the good and the benefits of our industry whereas we are seeing everything from identity mental health issues and we have seen suicide cases you know from all the stuff that's happening or addiction a lot of our kids here have addiction to online gaming and social media the other uh, impediment in a sense but it's the opportunity is actually telecoms and mobile access and internet access is no longer a basic necessity it's almost a given but it's about the healthcare the education was mentioned that and we do see the opportunity of digitization to actually try and bring this to areas dot, dot, that don't have and we have a lot of case examples of technologies that have brought psychology counseling to remote farmers in Australia that's suffering from depression and suicide during droughts and things like that so uh, I do see those as, as much opportunities going forward. Um, a few members of the audience are um, quite concerned about this particular question. Now, the purpose of this symposium that's organised by IPS and IMDA really is to bring um, experts, practitioners um, and concerned individuals from the three P sector together um, beyond information sharing but also to engage in you know, discussions on how to better grow digital inclusion in the myriad ways that uh, we identify. So um, this question surrounds, I guess, the consolidation of efforts. So clearly there are many people and organisations like yours um, which are doing very important work to help close digital divides and possibly digital chasms as well. So how do you think such efforts can be consolidated um, and reach people who might not know that such help is available? So here, I think the underpinning message is, you know, is there room for partnership? How might that partnership look like and what can we do? Maybe I can comment first. Uh, um, I think even the, the phrasing, the, the concept of digital divide, to me, is really has to be looked at or understood in the context of social divide. Right? We don't understand the communities that we're trying to serve because we don't hang out with them, we, we hardly talk to them. So um, I think in terms of collaboration and what we do particularly well at Daughters of Tomorrow is we tend to kind of appear at the strangest events that don't have a very direct link. Um, and, and we try to understand people from different sectors and so hence we have friends and partners from the tech sector, from healthcare sector, different kinds of sectors. And I think the, the amazing thing about that is how much are we stepping out of our comfort zone, whether it's in terms of our socioeconomic strata or cultural strata or whatever groups or silos that we're operating in to understand the other. And I think something that we've managed to achieve because we're so capable and curious um, is that from that divide where you know we have a 25 year old woman who doesn't know how hasn't touched a laptop in years and doesn't know microsoft word and office etc we now have women working in the ai industry doing data labeling and four of them just got hired by a big data company just last month so i think it's, it's really about um the social connection and I think collaboration has to be steeped in a willingness to really step into the other person's world to understand how that operates uh, and to find where the synergies and the, the points of partnerships um, and opportunities are. Yeah. Can I just add, um, as, as the earlier speakers were talking just now on the stage, 
something struck me, which was many of us are doing the same thing in our own way, right? We're, train, uh, we're training uh, underserved communities, Sunny with seniors, Carol with uh, women or, uh, in the lower 10%. Um, could we, for example, build a digital marketplace of service providers who are able to provide such services? Uh, you know, we, we have also a lot of volunteers in HP, but it tends to be fragmented. Every organization, every uh, you know, team wants to do things their way, which is fine, I think, but there are a lot of people who want to do good, and there's a lot of demand where we don't know where that is. Uh, why not create a marketplace in the middle, at least on the supply side, uh, to be able to channel all those resources uh, and figure out a way to match that demand to these resources. And that's where I think a lot of the NGOs can come into play. You guys know where the demand is, but not may, maybe not where the supply can come from or the resources can come from. If we can create something in the middle, and we're all digital these days, we've got all sorts of uh, Uberization going on. Why not create one for... Uh, not just digital inclusion, but social services. I think. Hello. Okay. Uh, I was just thinking back that when the first time we we tried to reach out uh, to telco companies like Singtel, it took us a while <laughs> running around. At the end, the answer is no because they don't know us enough. All right. And we, we work with HP uh, through uh, IMDA. I was ex-HP as well. <laughs> anyway, and uh, HP seems to come forward to uh, provide uh, what we call assistant trainers that will help us during that National Silver IT Fest program. Because on a year-to-year basis, they send like, you know, uh, 30, 40, or 60 of these people over the three days that help us to facilitate uh, the program. We may have trainers, but we don't have so many assistant trainers. Right. In fact, most of their assistant trainers can be the trainer, <laughs> but because they are not familiar with the programs that we are conducting. Right. At the same time, senior training senior is quite different from just taking any trainers to go there and train senior, because they, they run so fast that the senior cannot catch up. Okay. So, so I think collaborations and, and, and you know, consult, consolidation is only when you can see leveraging. As you could see RSVP in the last half year or so, they've been publicly <laughs> marketing itself, you know, on radios, on TVs, uh, on, 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 on uh, CNA and so forth, so that people would know that there is an organization trying to reach out trying to provide the service. And we have to do it not just English program, huh? because we have to cover it also Mandarin program. So when you launch one English program, the next one is a Mandarin program. Right? Thank you. I fully agree collaboration is an opportunity. In fact, it's quite interesting. We run a lot of regional programs in the community across the region. We find it a lot easier to forge collaborations in places like Australia, we struggle sometimes in Singapore. But having said that, if you look at our programs like 
the Cyber Wellness Hotline. Actually, it's a multi-stakeholder collaboration between government and we brought together Touch and Fayette services because we've identified that within the partnership, there's actually complementary services. We don't duplicate them. We actually fund to connect them together. And even the, the DQ framework that I was sharing, that's one of the reasons why we're trying to establish a framework that then creates a bit more structure to identify who is playing in what field globally, not just locally. Because for example, there could already be very good material and assets and knowledge and programs overseas, but because today there's no sense of where they are, where they play, and which area of the digital quotient, uh, they are not tapped and they are, there's a lot of duplication happening. So uh, something like the DQ framework and the digital intelligence framework is actually to try and create a bit of that common understanding of what's out there to be able to actually foster global type collaboration so that even gaps in the equation can be identified because today there's a lot of duplication efforts in certain areas and certain aspects of skills and knowledge and skills. Uh, maybe there's no players in those areas. There's one point that I miss out is uh, to actually have the sustainability, we create uh, uh, programs, for instance, in conjunction with ITE West, that they actually train our people how to program drones and fly the drones. Uh, but they are not uh, industrial drones. They are all commercial, you know, like, like, like children playing. But at least, you know, the seniors are quite excited that they can uh, program the drones, not, not by using the, the, the controls at all. So these are things that actually challenges them to, to continue you know, their, their, their commitment to become volunteers in their area. Yeah, just uh, very quickly, I think um, my colleagues have, have probably talked enough about how uh, partnerships can be um, fostered and, and established from business to NGOs and things like that. But I also think um, there are initiatives like the UN uh, Corporate Social Responsibility Initiatives, um, which provide a kind of not partnership in the sense that, you know, us two working together, but we can still be running towards the same goal. Um, and I think that that does a lot. If we rally around a common objective, it creates a different type of partnership or camaraderie uh, in the name of, uh, you know, inclusion. Yep. So you talk about using existing frameworks, you know, so we, then we are no, no longer just limiting collaborations to within a local context, but across borders, um, across countries. Um, I think there's a mention about increasing um, publicity so that not just the segments that you're targeting are aware of the services and the help that you're providing, but also you know, um, highlight to potential co collaborators and partners that indeed organizations like yours are doing some of these work, right? Um, so the next question requires a little bit of foresight. <laughs> Uh, from um, each of you, which I'm sure, given the work you've done, you have absolutely you have absolutely no problem in. Um, the question is, uh, how can we? What can be done to identify potential or new digital divides that may be resulting from emerging technologies? So this morning, towards the end of his keynote, Kim Anderson talked about the coming trends. Right, that are taking place in tech development. So, um, besides 5G, there's um, of course big data. There is um, VR. 
augmented reality, etc. And while those are trends, I think he kind of alluded to some potential threats as well. So what do you think can be done to identify currently unimagined or unforeseen divides? Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit here <clears throat> and, um, and refer to some of the, 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 the speakers that came before me. Uh, I think that if we, if I think there's a there's absolutely a, a trend and a connection between what's happening socially. Or on, I, I talked about the physical world um, and the divides that exist there, and then what happens when that moves over to the the digital world. Um, I think machine learning, AI, uh, pose a fundamental threat to marginalised groups. Um, in in that, as I and others have 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 been banging on about today. Uh, if industry continues to design for the happy medium um, and to marginalise the 20%, um, they will just not be included in the algorithms that, that we'll all rely on moving forward. Um, so in an increasingly digital world, that is a really like, number one you know, concern, I would say. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> let's talk more about that. I surround Singtel Venture Capital. That means we invest in long-term technology investments. And that's also a reason why we created the Singtel Future Makers Program, Social Innovation. Because actually a lot of the vision and innovation doesn't necessarily come from big corporates. So when we run the Social Innovation Program, actually we're identifying very breakthrough digitization and innovations and technologies. They're coming from startups and they're also coming from the marginalized segments, the people we call the marginalized segments of our community who have suffered long enough, but because now they have access to innovation and technology, are actually developing fairly leading edge uh, innovations that are solving for issues that they've long experienced. And I was giving really an example of a company that we worked with in Australia called Exceptional, where they have developed online digital assessments and algorithms to be able to pick up the relevant and the right competencies in the autistic spectrum because there are certain skill sets that are very relevant for things like cybersecurity and certain types of high-tech high skills, etc., which uh, a HR hiring process will never pick up, nor would they even show up for these interviews because maybe their social or other cognitive uh, uh, aspects. But again, yeah, we're seeing such amazing innovations that as big corporate, we would never have looked at it from those lens. And again, maybe it's those marginalized players that are developing the innovations, we've found many of these can be mainstreamed to also apply into other areas for mainstream benefit. And I can go on with a lot of examples. Yeah, I, I just, just want to very quickly follow up with that. And because you're, you're really hitting the nail on, on the head there, the, it's the, the in, you're going out and including people that would not otherwise not be included. And that's, that's ultimately what I'm saying for the AI machine learning innovation space, right? If you're not including the edges of society, they won't be factored in. Um, yeah, <laughs> thanks. I have a few uh, observations here. If we, we heard a lot about 5G and so forth, but you can imagine the layers and layers of protection being built around it. You think it's going to run like 5G or maybe like 3G, you know? With all this overloading protection that you put in, they're not going to run at that speed, that's for sure. So something that we need to uh, uh, think about who is responsible, you know, 
to actually take care of those because the people with the supercomputer can do that. I mean, in your home, even your fastest computer you have, you're not going to run. You can transmit a file and then nobody receive it and you wonder what happened. You know? So that's one area we need to think about. In the, in the area of AI, the heuristic action that's built into AI to, today is so enormous that we have to be very careful on some of the ethical issues because these are something that you know, uh, you need to study. It's not just AI, because AI can implement without feelings. Right? And then it can be unethical. There's something that we need to think about. Thank you. Um, okay, so we talked about technology, um, and coming from a tech company, I think, Technology is always an enabler. So I'm an optimist as far as new tech is concerned. Um, and even things like AI, for example, it can be challenging and it can be used to exclude people, but at the same time, it can also use, be used to include uh, more people. For example, it could be easier to code with AI to make it more inclusive. So instead of having a team of developers just separately coding uh, for uh, visually uh, impaired people, you could use AI tools to do it a lot more efficiently. And you could do it a lot more cheaply for many different groups of uh, people. So that's one way of looking at it. Same for 5G, uh, even 3D manufacturing, which HP has. Right? Those could be used to include a lot more uh, communities uh, than not. But what I think the, some of the biggest threats in terms of digital divides are concerned is social. We already see that a lot online. Uh, whatever social media uh, or medium you look at, um, communities are being formed that is very exclusive, right? Uh, not, just, well, not just in the United States, where we see a lot of that happening, but also across the world. And society is because of the ease of use of linking up with people uh, who are like-minded. Society has become a lot more stratified. So, and it's easier to get with uh, people that think like you or look like you. And if we don't break down those barriers, I think that would be the biggest uh, threat to all of us, or to society in general. Maybe I want to add, uh, uh, at risk of sounding like a broken recorder, because I think uh, my perspective would be very much more um, coming from a perspective of the social part. And I think something that I've observed is the increasing uh, lengths of time that people are spending on gadgets uh, and the interactions, the human-to-machine interactions is going to outweigh a lot more than the human-to-human -human interaction. And you can see that in the children these days, the amount of time they spend interacting with the device um, rather than real-world interaction. So I, I have a concern about um, potential future devices along the lines of what does it do to the emotional intelligence of the next generation? Um, and um, what, what, what does it speak of is, is the 
what is human interaction going to look like in the future? Um, I don't want to be very bleak about it, and I do see try to see the silver lining, which is the fact that with increasing mechanization and um, digital interfaces, perhaps human interaction is going to be so rare um, that it's going to be valued higher. And I think um, the other skills um, that involve um, people understanding emotional intelligence, EQ, empathy, is going to be something that's going to be worth a lot in the market, nah, to be a very pragmatic way of looking at it. So um, something to think about, like what can we, we foresee would be necessary that we take for granted now um, that we need to incorporate into the future education system to ensure that there is real world interaction and to ensure that our children are growing up to be emotionally healthy adults instead of you know, only capable of interacting over a screen. Yeah. Great points. Before I um, take more questions from Pigeon Ho, um, is there anyone who would like to ask a question unmediated by technology? Yes, Natalie. Thank you. Um, I guess uh, I have a question about actually something that was touched on, alluded to in some of the you know, uh, presentations, which is the fact that lots of tech companies are also taking over um, functions that are, I guess, to use the word traditionally, you know, loosely, uh, associated with the state or with um, financial institutions like banks and so on. I wonder, uh, you know, if the panel has anything to say about that because it has, for instance, implications in terms of um, who we interact with, you know, on, for instance, on social media. Um, what makes up our sense of identity? I think uh, coming alluded to that, you know, um, when you talked about how people tend are actually kind of interacting in silos. Um, even, um, you know, um, the sort of institutional, um, I mean, the, the, the kind of transactions we typically, you know, in the past deal with the state uh, are now mediated by tech companies. So um, um, I wonder if the panel, from your own perspective, has, I guess, um, thoughts about what this means um, in your respective uh, groups, uh, and also in particular the tech companies who are here, <laughs> you know, um, if you have anything to say about that as well. Okay, so while you ponder your answer over this challenging question, I realize from pigeonhole that uh, we have quite many questions pertaining to seniors. Maybe a bunch of us have just been promoted to seniors and that's why. So I'm going to ask this question and Sunny probably will take it, but if there's anyone else on the panel who's interested, please go ahead. So the question is, how can we better harness technology to provide digital coaching for seniors, even while we recognize that some personal hand-holding or personal interaction is important. So I'm not sure if this is a slight paradox to you, um, but we'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Um, so maybe we can have the panels uh, to answer Natalie's question first, and then we'll come to Sunny after that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question, uh, an interesting, um, interesting debate, and there isn't like a right or a wrong answer to that. Um, so just, I, I always, it's good because I get to clarify my very negative take on AI. I'm not against AI and machine learning at all. 
I just think there are some considerations. And the same here, um, just because it, it takes away an interaction, a human interaction, we're not going into the bank anymore, that doesn't mean that we should prevent this, this uh, technological advancement, right? And for people that can't go down the bank anyway, because they physically can't get there or they have some sort of anxieties around it, this provides them with uh, autonomy uh, and independence and a huge opportunity. So um, I think that, you know, there's always <laughs> two sides to the coin. Um, so, uh, but I'm 100% for uh, more digitalization. My view would be, you know, governance, policy, regulations has failed to keep pace. Because one, of, I can't remember which of the earlier speakers spoke about the issue of all this technology and digitization is, it's uh, very amorphous, it's, it's multinational, it's cross-border. Right? when generally all these regulations and policies and so forth have been established primarily at, 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 at a state level. But I think having said that, there are enough lessons out there without mentioning names of companies that eventually it catches up. So I think even as high-tech companies, there's, there's got to be a realisation that again, even if you have those opportunities, there's the good side and the dark side. You need to know what is the line that is, needs to be drawn that you fall into the dark side where technology has its negative consequences and that you're facilitating that negative consequences because eventually it does come back to issues of reputation, uh, social responsibility, license to operate. And as you're seeing, some of these companies actually now are getting clamped down very hard by governments, by regulators who are starting to act in tandem globally. Right? And you see that in the EU, you now see that in Asia with some of the Christchurch type issues in Asia and so forth. So I think it's a matter of time. So why do things that then creates a situation that governments and regulators have to come down hard? I think as big companies, we owe it to do the right thing and set the right, uh, be a right role model in that regards. I think um, to Natalie's question, um, and I must preface this, you know, whatever I'm saying now is just my own opinion, personally, nothing to do with my company. Um, I don't think any company sets out to take over functions of organs of state. Uh, no company I know intentionally does that. There may be some instances where there is a need uh, and that need has not been filled by uh, uh, a government or uh, you know, a regulatory body. I'll give you an example, crypto, cryptocurrency. Right? That is one very uh, obvious uh, um, function which has grown out of a need to have um, a verifiable currency online. And that is supranational, right? Today, we have all types of cryptocurrency, and it's actually spawned a technology called blockchain, which is actually very useful. Uh, but that, to be fair, wasn't created by any large organization or company. It was created by actually a small, very, very small group of individuals. The first one, which to, to this day, we don't know really who that person is. Um, and, you know, uh, the other case would be a case of, uh, as Andrew mentioned, you know, regulations not being or not keeping pace with uh, technological innovation. And that's something that's very real, right? 
uh, I talk about the mega trends, innovation has accelerated tremendously in the last, let's say, even five years with AI, uh, etc. And how do policymakers tackle that? Because the speed of regulation and the speed of innovation are totally separate. Somehow we have to figure out a way to increase the speed of regulation or even uh, overtake the, regulation, uh, the, the speed of innovation so that we are able to, uh, if not legislate, then be aware of all these changes. I will just add, if we look at it, who actually regulates the apps that is put into the internet for, for us to uh, download? We know the names of the organization, Apple Store, right? Google Play, right? They are the ones who actually collect a fee for your registration so that your apps can be downloaded. What are they doing about it? They allow it to go into, create trouble, and then you catch them and then correct it. So something has to be a floodgate to put up front to filter it. And they, if they are the ones who collect the fees, then I think they are the one who has to implement the first floodgate, check and balance. In a way, I suppose my function of sustainability is about that topic, right? It's about how companies, despite the need to grow, to be profitable, do things in a way that one have the right values and self-regulate. In fact, it's an issue, it's almost self-regulate. How do you self-regulate responsibly so that you don't create all these unintended consequences that can happen from the result of our business. And it really comes down to that. Sunny, would, like, would you like to take the question on seniors? Okay, on learning? seniors. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, one of the things about seniors is that if we take training programs that are developed uh, through IMDAs, uh, consultants, and so forth, we often did not we face the problem, the trainers themselves has a problem to train. Remember, I show one slide that on the Windows, under digital community, there are eight programs there. IMDA felt that I think we have one trainers that can do all the eight programs. I think they were just dropped it at the end of the program. Because each senior only can do three hours. So you can imagine eight programs, you will do 24 hours, right? So. So how do we do? So we went back to IMDA and said, why don't you come and train our trainers? So they actually brought in eight trainers to train our trainers. I said, well, that's different. I don't have eight trainers. That's luxury, mm -hmm. right? So one way I did was actually I assigned three trainers to each of those uh, eight programs. So each trainer must be able to do at least two to three programs. That means the three trainers should be able to cover the eight programs. I mean, if I'm now the trainer, the other two will become my assistant trainer okay. in that respect. So by doing that, by spreading out the load, we can conduct all the eight programs, you know, by summarizing it. Some of it are very straightforward, you know, email. You make sure that the uh, participants actually created an email account. Otherwise, the, by the time they walk into a class to create the email account, go home, mm. finish already. Mm. Right. Mm. So um, here you're talking about um, still 
training uh, through volunteers, right, face-to-face -face contact. So I think uh, the question, uh, I mean, the person asking the question was wondering, is there a way for us to design, you know, some programs somehow using tech, using tech to teach elderly tech? I'm not sure if that's a paradox to you. You know, Andrew has a comment on that. Then after that, we'll see if Sunny has more to add. I actually don't have an answer, but I think if we throw out that problem, there'll be some creative individual who will find the solutions, whether they are looking at uh, video base or interactive base or virtual reality. You know, like for example, one of our startups was thrown the problem. We got enough insufficient care workers dealing with disabilities and they're inadequately trained, not enough trainers. Mm. And one of the tech startups developed a whole uh, interactive uh, training for disabilities using both virtual reality and another one using interactivity that takes a first-line level training so that by the time the physical resource that comes in that's scarce, then that individual takes the training a lot deeper. You see? So there's probably an opportunity to look at things like that. And we don't have the answers, but someone out there will have if you throw the problem out there. Actually, there, there were answers already at least 15 years ago. The reason is because uh, we did an interactive video training program. But one hour of training program required 13 hours of video time in order to learn that one hour of lesson. And, and that's too long. So we came up with what they call a self-paced program. We developed it together with the Motorola uh, Training Center in Chicago. Right? And they did it quite well so that the operator can actually attend a training program when the line is down. And then when the line is up, they switch back and they continue to work without having to go to, you know, uh, uh, attend classes. So one final question is a roundup. Um, um, any panelists can take it. Uh, so in your view, how would you rate Singapore's effort? in closing um, digital divides? And which aspect do you think needs to be strengthened to help close the gap or the ch chasm? So rating Singapore's progress, efforts, just a quick one minute download. I think Singapore efforts uh, is actually very well organized. The only question is because it is so organized, sometimes it takes time for anything else to change. So, uh, yeah, because you know, they have to go through so many structures before you can change anything. And, and I think that that is something you require a fighter to really work with them. Because if you are not a fighter, you will just get tired and you surrender. Okay, excellent. Anyone else? Andrew? Having worked across the region, and I'm not saying this to butter up Singapore government, I think we do a great job. We sometimes may be a bit slower, but when we put our minds to it, we actually execute really well and with quite a long-term view. Um, again, you know, I think the area is back to what I mentioned earlier, as we're really pushing digital inclusion, part of the digital readiness, is that broader set of knowledge, acumen, skills that goes beyond the hard technical skills, the use of the device and e-commerce. It relates to all the social, the emotional, the EQ, the discernment, the judgments, because it's going to be all those soft elements that will de-risk some of the negative consequences uh, once you have a device in the hands of every individual. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we've got to solve for systematically from kids to parents to education to 
every player in the ecosystem. It has to be a very joint effort there. I think I'll echo Andrew. I think um, there's definitely a lot being done by the government and I'm personally very impressed that when the whole anti-diabetes movement came up that you know the Fitbits were out there in the community centres, the young people were there uh, setting it up for the old people so they can use the Fitbit to connect to their phones and walk. I think the, the effort is tremendous. It's a lot of uh, great intentions. Uh, and what we're missing here really is that last mile. Um, where you need the expertise of people working within communities and the communities themselves um, can, there's tremendous potential for the members of the underserved communities themselves to be enrolled in partnership, in collaboration with the various uh, larger systems and structures and schemes to, to really reach the neighbour next to you in, you know, in the other block of flat um, to, to close that gap. I think it's really, we're just at that last mile, if we can look into that. Um, we would be able to to kind of finish, go to the finish line, la. yeah. Well, I think the challenge is uh, in reaching out to a lot of the fragmented uh, communities which are underserved. Because one of the challenges we have in Singapore is we are so highly literate, both from a digital as well as a, a, a other points of view. But there are still underserved communities, and it's not so easy to find them. How do we get more of them on board? not really uh, qualified to comment on this, I don't think. Um, but I, I will say uh, that this is the first um, conference on inclusion that I've been where um, there has been someone representing the senior population on the panel, um, which I think speaks volumes for for the efforts and the, and the progression that Singapore has made in that respect. Um, in terms of, of uh, accessibility and digital accessibility, the level uh, of um, the quality of the content today has also been really exceptional. Um, and I'm, I'm comparing that to conferences in the UK, across Scandinavia, North America as well. Um, so I'm not qualified to comment, but if this is a, a, uh, a snapshot of, of how seriously uh, these things are taken here, it's very, uh, very impressive. So thank you everyone um, and help join me in thanking the panellists for holding up a <laughs> tough post-lunch session.